1: Welcome, Ray. Damn. Here we are again. Yeah. Oh, I uh. just... Okay, I pulled something. Cold War 8. For those of you saying, when are you going to get to the Cold War? Yeah, shut the fuck up. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Look, it's this all important background information. Honest to God, people. Trust mm-hmm. me on this. If you don't... Understand the 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 climate that pr- existed before, yeah. you know, sort of the beginning, the official beginning of the Cold War. It's really hard to really understand yeah. where these people are at. And, totally and honest, sense. Yeah. honestly, a lot of the, the the history books I read about the Cold War don't do a good job of job of mm-hmm. this. Possibly because they figure, well, you already know that, or you've done some pre reading, or. They just—they assume. We don't want to assume um, because then Martin Darlington gets upset at us. Right. Um, Wouldn't want that. I'm never going to let the, let this go, Martin. I swear <laughs> to God. Martin. am going to go to my deathbed taking the piss <clears throat> out of you, man. Uh, you know, we don't want to assume that you understand this stuff because right. otherwise, these questions about, well, why did America hate communism so much? Why did the UK hate communism so much? Why did... Um, the, the Americans hate the UK so much. Something that might surprise people. Uh, why? Why? You know. Anyway.
0: Well, the other part of it is, I mean, we are trying to, in a hopefully humorous way, is to just to increase your level of cynicism just just a bit. We're not trying to be down on hum, human nature, or whatever. But we just want to be honest with you and say people lie to each other all the time. Governments lie to each other all the time. Governments do what it's best for them. The hell with everybody else. And that's what's going to happen in the Cold War. But if you if you grow up naive or if you grow up not knowing that, you need to learn it at some point in your life that you can't trust everything that comes out of the television, everything that comes from a White House spokesman or whatever. So this is just us trying to get to the facts of the Cold War. And we're stripping away the patriotism and all that other crap and who's right and who's wrong and who started it and whose fault it is. We're just stripping it all down and trying to present it to you. This is what happened. And it's kind of scary because, you know, the world could have blown up. 25 different times during the Cold War. Thank God it didn't, but we're just stripping it down for you. Here's the story of the Cold War. And again, it's just kind of don't, the underlying message is don't trust everything you've been told. Like Cam said, go out and find out for yourself and make up your own mind. And the Cold War is a prime example of that.
1: Yes, indeed. So we finished episode seven, starting to talk about capitalism, what it is. Mm -hmm. And to, to, I like
0: your definition better than mine.
1: Uh, yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> Which one of us has a degree in history? Uh, uh, I used Gordon Gecko. Uh. I win. Good is good. <laughs> um, so capitalism, as we said last time, really blew up. Uh, even though it had been around for a long time in various forms, really blew up during the Industrial Revolution, where people could now pro- produce things a massive surplus, and uh, the. Made shit tons of money if you're a, yeah. a capitalist entrepreneur, um, and I talked about the American flag coming from the British East India yeah, Company and all that. that kind of stuff, and the, and the and the and the 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 Pledge of Allegiance. I hope you went and should fact check that stuff, yes, people. People, uh, if, yes. you know, go fact check this shit. Don't believe me. Yeah. Now, capitalism basically says that the people who have the money should be able to do whatever they want with it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is great if you're <laughs> one of the people that have the money. <laughs>
0: By the way, really
1: great. Do you know the Latin root of the word capital, Ray? The root of the Latin word.
0: Yeah, the Latin root of the root, word capital. Sorry, I got it backwards. Sorry, it's nine thirty here. I'm tired. Um, no capital city, city state. No, I don't know what is that. Cap- and it comes
1: well. The Latin word caput, which means head. Aha. Uh-huh. It used to mean, capital used to mean how many head of cattle a rich person owned in the long in the days, long here. time ago when cattle were used as money. Head, capital, cows, yes. capitalism, give me Rich, head.
0: good. Being yes. rich is good.
1: Okay. Getting head is good. It's, yeah.
0: Compared to Vegas head. <laughs>
1: Adam Smith is considered the first theorist of capitalism. What do you know about Adam Smith, Ray? Uh, Adam Smith.
0: Um, is that common sense? No, that's Thomas Paine. Shit, I'm sorry. It's time. Adam Smith. I'm sorry. I'm getting my, all these names mixed up. By the way...
1: Thomas Paine, awesome guy. I I listened to a podcast about him uh, a while back and read Mm -hmm. a bit about him. I'd love to do a show on Thomas Paine at some stage. He was uh, a crazy, crazy motherfucker, but that's another story.
0: Tell me about Adam Smith.
1: (laughs) Adam Smith, uh, famous for his 1776 work, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, usually just abbreviated to the Wealth of Nations. Was that a musical? No. Pamphlet. <laughs> should should be made into a musical, yeah. <laughs> uh, that'd be great. Um, you know, he he went over to the United States and did an analysis of the, 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 the economy, the socioeconomic uh, goings on in the early days over there. You know, Adam Smith is is quite often quoted today uh in terms of, I guess, giving support for capitalism. He's considered the father of capitalism in many ways, Mm -hmm. the first theorist. Uh, He theorized that within a given stable system of commerce and evaluation, individuals would respond to the incentive of earning more by specializing their production and that that would be good for everybody. This is Mm -hmm. the book where the idea of the invisible hand comes from. Basically, he said that there are unintended social benefits that come from individual entrepreneurial actions. Basically, somebody wants to make a lot of money, they go out and they build a product, they sell it, they compete with other people, that drives the price down, it's good for everybody. Right. The invisible hand of progress. Yeah, it was good in theory, but again, (laughs) doesn't fucking work in practice very well. And even Adam Smith Knew that and wrote about that, but that bit never. People don't talk about that bit because that fucks up the story. Um, You know, he also said that in order for the invisible hand to work, there had to be a level playing field. Everyone had to have equal and accurate and timely access to information about the products and the pricing and everything that was going on. Now, obviously, that doesn't work in real life. Yeah,
0: no. Today,
1: the richest 1% of the people in the world earn as much as the poorest 57%. Damn. Now, when you control that much wealth, you can use it to buy or manipulate the political process and the media for your benefit. So that that Mm -hmm. doesn't even come close to resembling a level playing field. Right. So the the people the, this is the, the basic endpoint of capitalism when it's un, unrestricted, or relatively unrestricted, is you end up with wealth concentrating into the hands of the few, them using that wealth to buy political power and propaganda power. Yeah. Through control, direct or indirect control of the media. Direct control is when you buy the newspaper, do a Jeff Bezos or a Rupert Murdoch, or you, you you buy a television station. Or indirect control is where you say, listen, or you can be a shareholder, or you can say, well, listen, um, you know, don't uh, talk much about socialism or communism. If you do, then um, we're going to pull our advertising, and your business is built on advertising. Right. So if we if we Blacklist you and pull our advertising, then you know CEO loses his job and the stock collapses, so the shareholders are pissy. So there's different ways of controlling, yeah. indirect uh, control, yeah, of the media. So Smith, uh, getting back down to Adam Smith, wasn't an economist; he was the professor of moral philosophy at the University Ooh. of Glasgow. So in fact, they call it the visible hand. <laughs> it's a bra moonlicht nacht en there's a moose loose about the hoose, laddie. Hey, that's invisible. How so? Oh, I'm a Jimmy. Apologies to any Scottish listeners that we have. Um, my dad was a Scot, so fucking back off. Um, you really can't understand the Wealth of Nations unless you read his other great work called mm-hmm. The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Mm. These they go together. In The Theory of Moral Sentiments, he argues that markets only work if all of the actors are moral. Sorry. Yeah. So this is whenever you hear Adam Smith get talked about in The Invisible Hand, call bullshit on it, folks, because right. that's not the message of Adam Smith, that unintended benefits flow because of entrepreneurial efforts. It's half the message. The other half of the message is, if there's an equal playing field and the actors are always moral. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Is
0: that on audiobook? I'm gonna to have to look for that on audiobook. Anyway. Pro- probably. So, probably. I, I, I recorded it. I thought a whole thing like this <laughs> I would I would pay
1: good money for that. Oh <laughs> hey. Oh hi oh, hey, the one. <laughs> or then you or you could go down to sort of a connery and Miss Moneypenny, this should pose no significant problem. That's pretty good. Oh,
0: my God. <coughs> and I'm
1: wet. You know, my dad's been dead for 15 years, but I can still hear his voice in my head. Hey, Cameron. <laughs> hey, Cameron. <laughs> That's how he referred to me. Right. Come. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, Where were we? Of course, the other thing the other thing about Adam Smith, there was very few corporations back in his time, but even then, mm-hmm. he wrote about the dangers of monopolies and excess profits. He wrote, the price of a monopolist is upon every occasion the highest that can be got. makes sense. Mm-hmm. He considered joint stock companies, aka corporations, to be inherently irresponsible entities. And could think of only a handful of reasons why publicly owned corporations would ever be justified. Mm. Again, quotes from Adam Smith that you don't hear often.
0: Man ahead of his time.
1: <clears throat> he re- he warned that if there were publicly owned corporations, they would require close public scrutiny and government control. Ah! Oh really my God! Out. Big government! Oh no! The government's getting <laughs> in our way! Uh. Yeah, Adam Smith, bitches. (laughs) Oh, my God. So capitalism is great if you're one of the minority who controls most of the wealth. But Mm -hmm. socialism is great, again, in theory, if you're the other 99%. Now, that's not to say that capitalism hasn't delivered great benefits and accomplished great things. Of course it has. Mm -hmm. Um, No one is denying, I'm certainly not denying, that there have been terrific achievements of capitalism, and particularly British and then American capitalism. However, Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. when you think about the overall value of capitalism, you need to look globally at the impacts of capitalism. Okay. You can't just look at the the benefits to a small group of people, the beneficiaries, let's say, of capitalism. You need to look at it holistically. For example, the heyday of the British Empire, if you were one of the upper class, fucking great. If you yeah. were the people working inside of Downton Abbey, <coughs> not so fucking great. No. You, you were basically indentured servant, right? You, you had very little opportunity. Uh, you He'd were, a, you, 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 your parents were servants. You were servants. As far as you knew, you would always be a servant. Your kids would be servants. All fell apart during World War One, as the show explains. I don't know. I, right. watched one, I watched one season of it, but Chrissy watched the whole thing. I watched one season in the finale. Chrissy watched the whole again. thing, though. She loved it. Um, so not so great for the servants. Great for the upper class, but even the servants had it better than the Indians of India. Not the right. American Indians, the Native Americans, the Indians in India, whose country was raped for the benefit of the British economy, mm-hmm. among with many other countries uh, that that were subject. Australia, <clears throat> to name <laughs> one, um, countries where the British came in and just raped and pillaged resources, yeah. people, etc. Yeah. So if you look at, if you say, okay, well, capitalism is a great thing. If you look holistically might have been a great thing for the beneficiaries of it, but what about everybody else? The people that got raped and pillaged, was it great for them? And so we need to measure it globally. We can't just look at, say, well, capitalism's great, look at America, standard living is great. Great, well, what about everyone else that you had to fuck over yeah. in the process of getting there? All right? Uh, well, we never fucked over anybody. Okay, yeah, all right, sure. Yeah. Go, go back to watching Fox News there, son. <laughs> um, now... You know, America, uh, sorry, Britain's economy during their imperialist period, period, Mm -hmm. their their superiority was based on their military superiority, which was gave them the ability to rape and pillage underdeveloped countries. Yeah. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to get to FDR saying exactly that in this episode. (laughs) So just fucking wait. Um. Today in America, you know, Americans have a much better standard of living on average than, for example, the people in China who work in the Foxconn factories that make iPhones. Mm. So in order to really assess the true value of capitalism, you have to look at all of the effects, all of the, the, the impacts, not just one's that directly address your back pocket or your standard of living. Look at climate change. Is there really much doubt among intelligent, rational people? Again, <laughs> conservative Christian Republicans listening to this, just stop listening for a second. Just put your finger in your ears and yeah. go, la, 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 like you normally do. Just stick oh. your finger
0: in your ear and say, make America great again.
1: <laughs> Whenever there's any science. yeah, Put your red hats on. Um <laughs> There's not much doubt that modern capitalism from the Industrial Revolution onwards is primarily responsible for destroying the world's climate Mm -hmm. and the impact that that's going to have on the lives of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people over the course of the next half century to century, not to mention the non-human flora and fauna of the planet, the the ecosystem of the planet. The consequences of it are, yeah, you, know, you know, I mean, you can't you can't put a staggering. figure on it. Right, staggering. Right. Yeah. Um, so, is capitalism successful? If you uh, you know bring that into the ledger, that it has inadvertently perhaps caused the destruction of the fucking world climate. I mean, see, so these are the things you need to think about. I think when you're assessing whether or not capitalism is as great as we might think it is, or not.
0: As an American, I'd just like to step up and say, we don't want to think like that. And where's my fucking iPhone?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, man, I've got an iPhone and a MacBook. I'm not innocent yeah. of this. you know. I, I live in a capitalist country where I have to make money to survive. Uh, yeah. And which you know if you're listening to this because you've signed up to become a premium member. Thank, Thank you, you, by the way, for your support. Um, now... As we've said before, you've said, um, jumping ahead as you do, who has the most to lose if a capitalist country adopts socialism? My r- rich white people. Mm. Now, I'm not talking about a military dictatorship. I'm not talking about right. okay, a Stalinist dictatorship where everybody loses, basically. <laughs> I'm talking about democratic socialism. Yeah. who's gonna, Who stands to lose the most? The rich, as you said, yeah. Um, the rich now, who are the rich? Well, they're the, you know, the the wealthy elite that run the big businesses, the corporate CEOs in this day and age, the guys and girls that run the media, that mm-hmm. you know, uh, are politicians or the people that fund politicians, the people that uh, work for politicians. It's it's the one percent. It's the elite.
0: The people that control the politicians.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the rich have a fundamentally selfish reason to want to crush socialism, crush the idea, dissuade people from even thinking about socialism or talking about it or discussing the merits of it. Mhm. And who was Churchill? Rich guy. Yeah, he's pretty rich. Who was Roosevelt? Even another richer, rich, another rich guy generational rich guys. Both of them come from wealth and privilege. So do you think they had personal motivations for wanting to demonize socialism and the Bolsheviks? Going to have to say yes for 200. (laughs) And this is why the wealthy elite (laughs) around Western countries still are determined to stop socialism from succeeding. Why they're trying to shut down, why even the Democratic Party's trying to shut down Bernie Sanders, the so-called progressive party as I said yeah. to David Markham the other day you have to stop saying you're a progressive Democrat if you didn't support Bernie Sanders in the primary process mm. because he, he not well because <laughs> Bernie was the progressive candidate if you supported yes. Hillary then you're not a progressive Democrat right. you're right. a centre-right fucking you know, moderate yeah. Republican Democrat. Yeah, we'll get into that with uh, uh, the Douglas Follette. Yeah, Douglas yeah. Follette when he comes on the show. Um, <clears throat> so blah 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 blah. That it's. I think this is really important to understand, mm. folks. Like, mm. in in the the incentives involved in people wanting to make. Look, I get it. If I'm a rich guy. Yeah, if I if I'm rich and powerful, I want to stay rich and powerful. Yeah, so I'm going to do everything in my power to block anything from happening. You got to kill it at birth, strangle it at birth, like Churchill said about Bolshevism. He wished it had been mm-hmm. strangled at birth. I'm going to do that because I don't want anything that's going to get in the way of. Me maintaining and or increasing my wealth and power. That's just that's what you would expect me to do, right? That's nature. That's mm. na- that's human nature.
0: Right. That's not evil. That's just the way. Like you said, human nature. All of us would do it if we were in that position. We tell yourself, "Oh, I wouldn't do that. I'd share my wealth." Yeah. Okay. But you probably wouldn't.
1: Now this, and you know, fucking, whenever I post anything about socialism or communism and the, or, or criticizing capitalism on Facebook, I get the same fucking guys every time who come up and go, you know, oh, well, yeah, blah, blah, blah. What about criticizing, you know, Stalin and the hard leftists and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, look, I'm not saying that the Soviet implementation of socialism, communism, or the Chinese implementation, or any other implementation of it in the 20th century, didn't deserve critique, criticism, and still today doesn't deserve those things. Uh, That's entirely necessary in any conversation about socialism. We have to critique and analyze how did they come to power, and uh, how do we prevent that from ever happening again, as we have to really understand the roots to Hitler coming to power, or the roots to Donald Trump becoming POTUS, which is probably going to happen. Um, we have to understand the roots of these things and break them down. But that's that, that, we're getting back to the Red Scare and McCarthyism, etc. Being a member of the Communist Party, reading a book on communism, reading Marx's mm-hmm. theory, doesn't make you a supporter of Stalin, even then uh, as, uh, or even today. Fortunately, it's it doesn't well make you
0: unpatriotic right? as well. Exactly.
1: So the rich guys were dead against it, uh, and for obvious reasons. Now, you know, again, think about 1990, 1920, um, when all this Red Scare stuff started happening. You look around the world at the time. Tsar Nicholas II in Russia had been executed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Property had been nationalized. There was anti-capitalists and revolutionary speeches coming out of the Bolshevik state. Now, this obviously caused a lot of deep Real anxiety amongst the British and American ruling classes, and across Europe, in fact, they right. they could see this happening. It's not actually that dissimilar from what was happening across Europe during Napoleon's time after the French Revolution. You know, the yeah, whole. Point- I was
0: thinking about that. Yeah, it's like, hey, if you get rid of that king, you might get rid of us. So we got all all these kings that got to gather up and take you down before our people get the same idea. That's exactly it's- what
1: I was thinking. You know, that was for those that haven't listened to the Napoleon series that I did with Markham, that was kind of the key point I wanted to get across in that series was that the so-called Napoleonic Wars or the Wars of the Revolution were inherited by Napoleon and they were basically wars of the United Monarchs of Europe going, Well fuck, the French just removed their monarchy. We can't allow that to succeed, or their or our people will want some of that. We need to crush it and we need to spend everything that we've got throwing people at it. And, of course, they demonized the French Revolution and Napoleon in the process and Mm -hmm. continue to demonize him to this day when, uh, really, they were just trying to save their own fucking thrones and maintain and prop up their Mm -hmm. own immoral, corrupt monarchies.
0: And that's what Churchill did uh, as far as the communists go, um, the socialism. Yeah, He just had to bring it. He had to bring it down because, I mean, there were certainly a lot of people in Britain at the time who were suffering who could have used um, a more fair government or could have had their – their. Um, needs met a little bit better by the government but yeah so churchill has got to shut this down so he like you said i think you said it a couple episodes ago he makes some pretty harsh speeches about stalin about communism about their methods about their tactics and about their goals and he wanted everybody to fear the spread of communism even though they were still just trying to get their own house in order
1: yeah you know he was one of the wealthy elite come from the wealthy elite oh my god chrissy just brought me some mail Guy Moore From Canada Sent me Mm -hmm. some cigars Thank you Guy Moore If you're listening to this I'm going to open it live on air Um Uh Where's my cutter Here it is Yeah So he uh, Um All of the wealthy elite In England And Europe Were terrified That Bolshevism might come And the reason is Because it meant they would lose Lose their Well literally lose their shit Um (laughs) The British Prime Minister at the time, Lloyd George, wrote a book called The Truth About the Peace Treaties later on. He said that there was throughout the Allied countries, especially among the property classes, implacable hatred born of a real fear of Bolshevism. Mm. Holy shit. No, it's not cigars. It's a Cubist cat from Cuba. A guy might have been the guy that was in Cuba recently. Oh, so what? And he he sent me fridge magnets of Che Guevara and Fidel, and a Cuban revolutionary cap. Hello, Cameron. Here's a small token of appreciation for the many hours of enjoyment you gave me with your podcast. While walking the Varadero beaches, I laughed my something out heart out while listening to a 2008 Napoleon podcast. You were announcing your trip to Corsica, and your Interest in chasing skirts. I did say that, and that's where I met Chrissy. You're a good chaser. Well, thank you, Guy Moore. That is great. Uh, And he talks about the. I I can wear my Cuban army cap while I defend the many forgotten virtues of socialism. Well, shit. I'm putting that on. Good timing, Guy Moore. I hope you're listening to this. I'm putting this cap on to finish the show. Um. Yeah, so Lloyd George talked about how they were terrified. Uh, in the US, Senator Robert Taft, who is the son of President Taft, Taft, is that how mm-hmm. you pronounce it, Taft? Taft, right. Taft. Oh,
0: right. I'm going
1: to put my cap on. Oh, it's small. Oh, Cubans <laughs> obviously have smaller heads than me. He I once said the victory of communism would be far more dangerous to the United States than the victory of fascism. Mm. Should I keep going? Do you want to interject? Yes, no, no, just that is completely wrong, but go ahead. <laughs> William Appleman Williams, uh, who taught a course on U.S. foreign relations at the University of Wisconsin Madison and wrote a great book that everyone should read called The Tragedy of American Diplomacy. He wrote the great majority of American leaders were so deeply concerned with the Bolshevik revolution because they were so uneasy about what President Wilson called the general feeling of revolt against the existing order and about the increasing intensity of that dissatisfaction. The Bolshevik revolution became in their minds the symbol of all the revolutions that grew out of that discontent. And that is perhaps the crucial insight into the tragedy of American diplomacy the general feeling of revolt that was in the air. Jeez, yeah. So uh, the the
0: American government and British government are overreacting and incorrectly reacting to the results of what's going on in Russia.
1: Well, depending on what side of the fence you're on, I guess, from their side. Right, right, based
0: on their perceptions.
1: Yeah. Right. Now, remember, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, during the early part of the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, America was going through constant... Economic hard times um, and you know again, I think Bob Sullivan or somebody disagree with me on this. Look it up, man like you were having, there was a a recession in the United States every couple of years from about eighteen ninety onwards until world war two and mm. some of them were minor, but the economy right. was going through fits and starts, and it was you know some of them were quite quite big. there was a lot of discontent uh, you know everyone thinks well the twenties you know is the Roaring 20s. Yeah, the, the rich people made a lot of money in the 20s, but it wasn't spread around evenly. There were still a lot of people right. that were suffering. And we talked about um, FDR in the bio episode going to Georgia to go to the hot springs, you know, and he saw the suffering of the people in Georgia. And this was during the 20s when, uh, yeah. you know, everyone was supposedly doing well. Yeah, it was limited. It was, it's kind of like today. A lot of people in the U.S. are doing really well, making a shit ton of money. If you're in the one percent, if you work in the financial sector, everyone else not doing so great.
0: Yeah, living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, you can go to parts of Georgia now, and I'm sure you could see the suffering and the poverty and the lack of uh, lack of resources. So not much has changed. Go to Georgia
1: and work. meet my crazy motherfucker father-in-law. Um, yeah. <laughs> no,
0: no, didn't have to. Ah, <laughs> add that anyway. No, I don't, you don't have to don't go to that far south. Yeah. Now you can go to South Carolina and meet my crazy fucking family. So uh, whatever. <laughs>
1: um, <clears throat> you know, so the fear then the, was that millions of people would join the Communist Party and it would become a real mm-hmm. political movement. So they needed to stop that before it started by demonising anyone remotely connected with socialism or communism or anarchy. And accuse them of bombings accuse them of traitors deport them put them in prisons terrify yeah. everyone of being involved or knowing anyone who was involved uh, to get back to McCarthy like uh, even knowing a communist was gonna put you in the in deep water it's a bit like now actually in the United States you know Bernie Sanders has done a great job uh, rehabilitating the idea of democratic socialism during this campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's got a lot of young people thinking about it rationally for the first time in a century. Yeah,
0: he's got them worked up, yeah. Too bad he's not a couple of years younger so he could run again yeah. four years from now because he's got the young people on his side.
1: Well, he always has you, Ray.
0: <laughs> Shit.
1: Howard Zinn in his book, The People's History of the United States, which is another book that people definitely should add to their reading list, wrote a million and a half workers in different industries went on strike in 1934. That spring and summer, Longshoremen on the West Coast, in a rank-and-file insurrection against their own union leadership, as well as against the shippers, held a convention, demanded the abolition of the Shape Up, which was a kind of early morning slave market where work gangs were chosen for the day, what was that great mm-hmm. fucking Marlon Brando film, On the Waterfront? You see an example of right. that? Right. Yeah. Basically, you went out and just lined up and they would pick out their people they wanted and you got to work for the day, you got a paycheck, no one else did. And they went out on strike. 2,000 miles of Pacific coastline were quickly tied up. The Teamsters cooperated, refusing to truck cargo to the piers and maritime workers joined the strike. When the police moved in to open the piers, the strikers resisted en masse. Two were killed by police gunfire. A mass funeral procession for the strikers brought together tens of thousands of supporters. And then a general strike was called in San Francisco. With 130,000 workers out, the city was immobilized. 500 special police were sworn in and 4,500 National Guardsmen assembled with infantry, machine guns, tanks, and artillery units.
0: Damn. So again, the, uh, the those who have, those who are in positions of power, they believe that they have a legitimate concern as far as the fear of maybe communism or at least socialist ideas coming into the country, which would not have happened if they had treated their people better with better pay and better working conditions, but that's crazy.
1: And this is during FDR's first term, right, 1934. Mm -hmm. So came in Power 33, Machine guns, tanks, and artillery units being brought in against striking workers in in the United States during FDR's time. The Los Angeles Times at the time wrote, the situation in San Francisco is not correctly described by the phrase general strike, what is actually in progress there is an insurrection a communist inspired and led revolt against organized government there is but one thing to be done put down the revolt with any force necessary jeez who owns that newspaper some rich guy yeah yeah so you know this is this is not even world war 2 this is peacetime uh in America, under FDR. Yeah. Jeez. So, I mean, a- again, uh, this is the, the general fear of, of communism and socialism and workers uh, organising to fight for better conditions that you saw in America. Uh, Howard Zinn's book is full of those stories. Um, it's something that you, know, you probably wouldn't know about uh, if you get a regular history education because it kind of gets uh, censored. Out of you know most u s histories right
0: so um yeah so, so what so by the time thirty four comes along f d r has been in office for almost one year, you've had the great economic collapse in nineteen twenty nine like you were saying on the other episode, FDR is trying to even get trade going with Russia anything to stimulate their economy to get people employed again, but like like you were saying in the earlier episode, it is all about trade. America is producing more than it could possibly consume they 've got to get this stuff outside of the country they need the people they need people to pay for it and they so they need not only America to be politically stable but they need other parts of the world politically stable and doing doing well on their own so they can afford to buy the American goods. So it's about business. It's about influence. It's about power and money, which all comes down to trade because that's how they're making their money at this point, as far as those who have a lot of money, the 1%. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, economics played a huge role in this, economics as well as ideological differences. And we'll get on to more of the economics in in a while. I want to get back to Churchill, though, and, and mm-hmm. you know, his hatred of the Bolsheviks going back to 1990, 1990, He called them a league of failures, the criminals, the morbid, the deranged and the distraught, the vampire which sucks the blood from his victims. Damn. He wrote, Lenin was sent into Russia by the Germans in the same way that you might send a file containing a culture of typhoid or cholera to be poured into the water supply of a great city, and it worked with amazing accuracy. Yeah. This is the level of rhetoric that he had against them. And and again, this is 1919 1920. We're not talking about... You know, after Stalin's purges or any of that kind of stuff, or after Stalin had you know, taken over Poland or whatever. This is, this is still during the Russian Civil War. One historian I wrote who um, wrote about Churchill's speeches and articles wrote, For with great certitude, Churchill's speeches depict the Soviets as unreformable creatures of tireless aggression. In fact, they represent the convictions of the visceral anti-Soviet that Churchill had never ceased to be since the first days of the Bolshevik Revolution. In short, his anti-Nazi phase, for which ironically he will always be principally remembered, was for him something of a digression, however necessary, in his extraordinarily long career. Thus, once the Battle of Britain had been won and the Americans had ended the war, the struggle to defeat Germany became for him... No more than a second-order crusade. For in his own eyes, at least the contest with Soviet Bolshevism was what gave his political life the greatest continuity and meaning.
0: Damn, so he must have really hated having to work with, uh, yeah. with Stalin after Germany attacks the USSR.
1: Exactly, exactly. Damn. And Stalin knew it. So you want to talk about, you know, what led to the Cold War, the la- massive levels of mistrust. Even though the enemy of my enemy is my friend, yeah. the levels of mistrust were astronomical before they even sat down in Yalta. At the end of World War One, when he was Secretary of State for War, Churchill said, we might have to build up the German army again, as it was important <laughs> to get Germany on its legs for fear of the spread of Bolshevism. Oh,
0: God. You want well, to hear what? something? Like- I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. Is there more to the quote? I apologize. No, no. I I just want to say the irony of that has not escaped me. Churchill said almost the exact same thing at the end of World War II. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a there's a GRU uh, Soviet security agency, um, intercepted a message from Churchill to Monty, to, to General Montgomery. And he said, um, I want you to gather as many of the German weapons as you possibly can, make sure they're in good working order, house them, guard them, because we might have to rearm the Germans in case the Russians do anything, um, you know, unto war. So, ba- and they, and Stalin knew this, that he thought this way. So, again. His his message is consistent. He he does not trust. He does not like the communists, and he's ready to rearm his former enemies in order to fight them.
1: Yeah, as you say, Stalin knew this. Yeah. He knew, and you knew that was uh, Churchill's attitude out of World War One, and he suspected it was going to be his attitude out of World War Two. Okay. Going back to back to World War One, uh, Churchill at the time, again Secretary of State for War, authorized the M device. Um, bombs with chemical tips at the time Mm. the most devastating chemical weapon ever devised to be dropped over villages and military posts held by the Bolsheviks in northern Russia. Damn. This is during the northern Russian uh, campaign expedition. He also supported the use of these chemical weapons against tribes in north India. I'm not sure if we mentioned this back in the Churchill episode. Um, He uh, You know, he said uh, they're troublesome. Let's gas them. Oh God! I really don't understand this squeamishness <laughs> about poison gas. He, he apparently I know. Wrote.
0: I read that quote. I'm like, oh my God, dude, quit writing everything down. But well, it-
1: apparently, okay. Apparently, in his defense, it wasn't like sarin gas. It right. Was, right. It was tear gas, and but people could die from it. I think if they assumed yeah. enough. But again, he wanted to just gas people, yeah.
0: and he his did. Answer.
1: And so he did, um, they did bomb. They, did, they gassed uh, the Bolsheviks in northern Russia. One Russian soldier said that all 50 of his comrades were wiped out. Mm. Uh, they Damn. dropped thousands of these bombs on various villages um, held by the Bolsheviks. So, I mean, this, this isn't nothing, right? Right. This, this is, is th- going to be a tricky, tricky partnership. And, and at the time, the Russians had done nothing to England. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, they never did anything to England, but they, they, they'd done nothing to England. They'd never invaded England. They'd never assassinated any British person. And yeah, here Churchill is dropping thousands of chemical bombs on the Bolsheviks.
0: Damn, there was something in his psyche... Or whatever, who knows, but he certainly had an extreme hatred as opposed to, well, I disagree with them, or I can see where they're coming from, but I, I don't think that's the way for them to go as a government. No, he absolutely hated them, and that that drove him, or that, that helped him to make certain decisions, and obviously to say and do certain things. That's, that's just crazy.
1: Mm, so let's, let's talk about economics. I... We've talked about ideology, socialism, capitalism, hatred of the Bolsheviks. Right. But the other big reason is you pointed out earlier or last episode I can't remember because they're all blurring into one another yeah. Now. I know. I know. <laughs> Trade, economics. Right. Yes. Very big part of the Cold War again and of World War 2 uh, and World War 1 actually. Mm-hmm. that don't get talked about anywhere near enough. If at all, it's usually an afterthought instead of yeah. being front and center in any discussion about why these conflicts happened.
0: Well, I mean, I get it. It's not sexy. I, I totally get that. But trade, I mean, it's the lifeblood of the countries. It's the lifeblood of their economies. So the governments have to take that seriously. But again, it's one of those things that no one gets excited talking about, but it is so that vital. shit. It changed I mean, the world. What? People are always talking about money and buying shit. No money. And- yes, yes. No, but like when you're reading a history book, nobody, you know, people want to read about war, or fighting, or whatever. But books about trade or economics—that was my point.
1: Well, I think it's not. I, I, I think it's not talking about not because it's not sexy. It's because eh, you don't want people to think about that. It's like you, you have to um, mask the real intentions uh. of war with. Gotcha. Glory and religion and freedom and all of these sorts of things. You say, well, it's really about money. Uh that's <laughs> that's not cool. <laughs> no, it's gotta be what will you do without freedom? You know, yeah, I get yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. I don't want yeah, you know, people don't want people to the, the the leaders don't want people to know that that's what's going on. They gotta hide that shit, man. Yeah, good point. So Here's how economics and trade tie into all of this. Now, the Bolsheviks, believe it or not, uh, were against imperialism. (gasps) And England ran the greatest empire on the (laughs) earth that day. It was totally an imperialist empire. Imperialism is defined as a policy of extending a country's power and influence through colonization, the use of military force, or other means.
0: Nice.
1: The Oxford Dictionary back in 1920 actually defined it as imperialism is the extension of the British Empire where trade needs the protection of the flag. How's that for so, honesty? So, tra- so trade
0: brings the military, and the military brings the trade. I mean, yes, yeah, the dog and uh, what's, it, what's that expression? Wagging the, the the tail wagging the dog. But yeah, you have to have trade, but you have to have the traders protected um, by the you know, from the local. So you bring in
1: the military as well. Yeah. Well, we've come to trade with you. No, we don't want to trade with you. Well, here's our <laughs> yes. navy. Yeah. Yes, you do. And you really do. We want really we do. we want to buy a ton of gold from you. How much is it? It's a uh, hundred thousand dollars. Well, we'll pay you fifty. Fuck off. Okay. Well, <laughs> here, here's <laughs> our navy. They say you should sell it to us for fifty. Matter <laughs> of fact, just give it to us. We now yeah. own this land. Yeah. Well, that's what America mm-hmm. did with
0: Japan. Uh, Commodore Perry just marched in there with the black ships with the uh, with the. And just said, hey, guess what? We're here to trade. Oh, we don't deal with outsiders. We're here yeah, to trade. Congra- <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We? yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I was going to say with that Oxford quote by trade, they meant raping the colonies. And by the right. flag, they mean a big fucking military.
0: Right.
1: Now, here's where we get to America's role in this. Um, jumping ahead a bit. The first time FDR and Churchill met was in August 1941. Mm-hmm. Off of, I think it was on like a battleship off of Newfoundland. Right. And it's known as the Atlantic Charter Meetings. This is where, the first time they met, this is where Churchill's going, please, please enter the war. Please enter the war. Please, please enter please. the war. Please, we're on the bones of our ass. Please enter the war. And Roosevelt's like, well. You know, technically, I I had a an an election campaign last year where I promised I wasn't going to send (laughs) the guys into a war. What have you got? (laughs) Like, what have you got to train? Essentially, Uh, this is going to. I know I'm going to get emails out of this, but again, before you send me an email telling me I'm wrong, check your facts. Mm -hmm. It's just going to save you a whole lot of embarrassment (laughs) down the track when you see that I'm right and you're wrong here. Um, at the time, FDR called British imperialism a policy which takes wealth in raw materials out of a colonial country, but which mm. returns nothing to the people of that country in consideration. Ouch. It's true yeah. though. FDR's son, Elliot Roosevelt, was at the Atlantic Charter meetings in 1941, and he wrote his account of it later on. And um, I would like to read from it. Yes, please. I wasn't asking permission. Okay, that wasn't very nice. I know. Father started it. Of course, he remarked with a sly sort of assurance. Of course, after the war, one of the preconditions to any lasting peace will have to be the greatest possible freedom of trade. He paused. The PM's head was lowered. He was watching Father steadily from under one eyebrow. No artificial barriers, Father pursued. As few favoured economic agreements as possible. Opportunities for expansion. Markets open for healthy competition. His eye wandered innocently around the room. Churchill shifted in his armchair. The British Empire trade agreements, he began heavily. Ah, father broke in. Yes, those Empire trade agreements are a case in point. It's because of them that the people of India and Africa, of all the colonial Near East and Far East, are still as backwards as they are. Mm. Churchill's neck reddened and he crouched forward. Mr President, England does not propose for a moment to lose its favoured position among the British dominions. The trade that has made England great shall continue and under conditions prescribed by England's ministers. You see, said Father slowly, it is along in here somewhere that there's likely to be some disagreement between (coughs) you and me. I am firmly of the belief that if we are to arrive at a stable peace... I'm not sure who I'm quoting now. <laughs> I'm not sure which accent I should do. I'll skip the accent. I'm firmly of the belief that if we are ad- to arrive at a stable peace, it must involve the development of backwards countries. I think this is FDR. Backward yeah. peoples. How can this be done? It can't be done, obviously, by 18th century methods. Now, Ooh. who's talking 18th century methods? Whichever of your ministers recommends a policy which takes wealth and raw materials out of a colonial country, but which returns nothing to the people of that country in consideration. 20th century methods involve bringing industry to these colonies. 20th century methods include increasing the wealth of a people by increasing their standard of living, by educating them, by bringing them sanitation, by making sure that they get a return for the raw wealth of their community. Around the room, all of us were leaning forward attentively. Hopkins was grinning. Commander Thompson, Churchill's aide, was looking glum and alarmed. The PM himself was beginning to look apoplectic. You mentioned India, he growled. Yes, I can't believe that we can fight a war against fascist slavery and at the same time not work to free people all over the world from a backward colonial policy. What about the Philippines? I'm glad you mentioned them. They get their independence, as you know, in 1946, and they've gotten modern sanitation, modern education. Their rate of illiteracy has gone steadily down. Of course, for people who don't know, the U.S. controlled the Philippines mm-hmm. uh, at the time, and actually, after 1946, they were given their independence to a corrupt dictator who was a U.S.-installed puppet. But that's yeah. another story. We'll Can't get to have that everything. time. Yeah. Now. Churchill goes on. There can be no tampering with the empire's economic agreements. They're artificial, said Roosevelt. They're the foundation of our greatness. The peace, said Father firmly, cannot include any continued despotism. The structure of the peace demands and will get equality of peoples. Equality of peoples involves the utmost freedom of competitive trade. Will anyone suggest that Germany's attempt to dominate trade in Central Europe was not a major contributing factor to war? Let me repeat that. Germany's attempt to dominate trade in Central Europe was a major contributing factor to war, said Roosevelt. Gradually, very gradually and very quietly, the mantle mantle of leadership was slipping from British soldiers soldiers from British shoulders mm-hmm. to American Churchill got up to walk about the room talking gestic- gesticulating at length he paused in front of father was silent for a moment looking at him and then brandished a stubby forefinger under father's nose Mr President he cried I believe you are trying to do away with the British empire Every idea you entertain about the structure of the post-war world demonstrates it. But in spite of that, and his forefinger waved, in spite of that, we know that you constitute our only hope. And, his voice sank dramatically, you know that we know it. You know that we know that without America, the Empire won't stand. And scene. Mm.
0: Yeah. Woo! Woo! Nicely done. Radio theater.
1: So here it is. Orson Wells. go fuck you yourself. I'm just taking over. <laughs> Mystery theater presents. Um, here's the thing that you've got yeah. to understand. Uh, not you, but the listeners. I know you understand yeah. it. Roosevelt understood that part of his negotiating tactics to get into World War II was to end... The uh, imperial preference of the British Empire's trading system, and I'll explain what that means um, shortly. But people, you know, you know, people tend to think. Robert Sullivan said this to me in his email, his second long apologetic email. He said, "You know, growing up in America, I always thought we got involved in the war because of World War, because of you know bombing at Pearl Harbor, and to support the British because they were our allies, and we were just being altruistic." How stupid was I? You know, and it's not that those things are not true. Those things were factors. But yeah. one one of the things that Roosevelt had over Churchill's head and then Truman after him was that part and parcel of America's involvement in supporting the British, which was on the uh, you know bones of its ass, was mm. the ability for the U.S. to break into the British Empire's International trading system. Right. It's about economics and trade.
0: And it's always unfair for somebody.
1: You know, you've got to remember that at its zenith, the British Empire included about a quarter of the world's population. Wow. About 500 million people. And for, and for you kids out there, you probably haven't heard this yet in
0: school. But what was it? What was that saying? At some at one point, the sun never set on the British Empire. Yeah, they had so much land. Ever there was always sun, sun was shining on some part of the empire, no matter what time of the day it was. Now, That's here's, how fast it was.
1: Here's why this is important. Throughout the Cold War series, we're going to be talking about. Well, they they you know the Allies wanted they fought the Cold War because the Russians were trying to conquer the world. They wanted to increase their territories, <laughs> and that's just wrong. It's inherently wrong. Yeah. Meanwhile, Britain uh, you know, controlled yeah. 500 million people uh, and a quarter of the world's population up until World War II and their empire. Yeah. You know, yeah. They had built their economic supremacy on massive, massive scale invasions and conquering land. But when mm. another country says, well, in order to increase our... Uh, uh, resource base or increase our security and, cre- you know, blah, 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 increase our wealth base to rebuild from the devastation of losing 27 million people in World War II, we need to, increase, you know, we need, we need to annex these countries and, oh, no, well, that's, you can't do that. Yeah. You know, at, Which, the, at its height, the Eastern Bloc, the Warsaw Pact, the Eastern Bloc, the right, USSR and the associated countries, at its peak in 1985, it had about 410 million people in it. Mm. 20% smaller than the British Empire at its peak.
0: Right. Yeah, different strokes for different folks. It was okay when they did it.
1: You know, Lend Lease, the, um, you know, the Lend Lease where the US gave aid in terms of money and weapons, various resources, oil, etc., to England and a number of other countries in World War II. We'll talk about more that later, but it was given to Britain on the condition that it would eliminate imperial preference after World mm-hmm. War II and join the United States in shaping a multilateral open-door world economy. Imperial preference was this system of protectionist tariffs that right. made it difficult for non-British empire countries to trade outside of the empire.
0: Yeah, basically made it not worth it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, as like protectionist tariffs everywhere, if you can buy um, a ton of grain from another member of the British Commonwealth, it's going to cost you 20% less than if you buy it from America, for example. So why would you buy it from America? It's You're not preventing America from trading, but you're just providing well, or you, you, – you, you're throwing taxes yeah, and tariffs right. on, on non-Empire imports. To protect your internal uh, You know Industries Yeah. And America wanted to end that So again not very well Known but part of America's support of Britain And entry into World War 2 was to crush the British Empire I think
0: uh, FDR Said after that meeting something like that Was America's poorest substitute For an alliance or something like that I'm trying to remember because I came here to align with you and you're busting my balls, my empire balls. But um yeah, that's FDR was uh he knew he knew exactly what was going on. He knew he, what he wanted to do and it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit tacky to twist someone's arm when they're at their low point, but that is the only time you can twist someone's arm is when they're at their low point.
1: Yeah, I remember twisting your arm. <laughs>
0: because um, I forgot the safe word as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, mind you, after this char- Atlantic Charter meeting, Churchill went back to London and gave a speech in September 1941 when he said this whole thing about freedom of trade was only meant to apply to states under German occupation and had oh. nothing to do with the British Empire. So <laughs> no. he, f- he flat out fucking lied, as you would expect. Yeah. Um, so, oh, where are we, man? We're, we're, we're done an hour.
0: Yeah. So so basically, with all this stuff, United States doesn't trust Russia, Russia doesn't trust the United States, Britain hates, Churchill hates uh, Stalin, Stalin knows this, the American government is afraid of any kind of uprising, as is Britain, and now you've got FDR twisting the tail of... Britain at its low point. I mean, this is going to be the most fucked up partnership. But the only reason it could possibly, possibly work is because the menace that is facing them all is more threatening than almost anything else that could possibly happen on the planet.
1: Mm, and I think that's where we're going to leave it. Episode fucking eight, I guess. <laughs> uh, fucking and eight. We'll
0: see you on goddamn nine uh, next week.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Ray. Thank you, everybody who is supporting thank the you. show. Um, yes, I will actually, let me it. let me read another review. Yeah, before yeah. Before we that. go, um... <laughs> uh, this is by Luke from the United Kingdom. This is the podcast you're looking for. So you searched for history or even the Cold War. Now you're looking at this podcast. Stop reading the reviews and download it (laughs) now. If you already know Ray and Cam, then you're only reading the reviews because so many of them are entertainment in themselves. But if you don't, get ready for a wild ride. Wish you could sit around drinking with your mates and discuss the Bay of Pigs or the post-war balance of power without getting your pint poured over your head. Dream of railing against the trend for simplistic interpretations of complex historical events without your friends staring at you in dismay? Aspire to a world where dick jokes and the study of history and historiography go hand in hand? Then this is the podcast and these are the podcasters for you. Oh, and getting good at raged at Cam's more ridiculous opinionated tangents is all part of the fun. Also go check out their other podcasts like Life of Caesar. Thank you, L-U-K-E, with spaces yes. in between them for reasons I don't fully understand. <laughs> for that, uh, send us an email, a email at acoldwar.com with mm-hmm. your address, and we will send you a thank you gift. Literally I, will. Send I don't know you why something. I'm saying that like... Don't know why. Sylvester, th- but uh, I thought I... No, uh, whatever. Um. And thanks for the support. Yes, all of our heroes. We appreciate it and mm-hmm. uh, hope you're enjoying the show. Again, I know it's not very funny. There's not a lot of music in it. We're working up to it. Hopefully, though, it's yeah. it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a hybrid show, a little bit serious, a little bit right. more serious than we're used to doing. Right. But uh, it'll, we'll it'll get, get there. there. Yeah,
0: we'll, we'll get, get there. there. We're going to ram, cram. We're going to ram in dick jokes that came out wrong and music.
1: Right. Thank you. All right. Next time. Bye.